everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. Happy almost New Year's Eve. We are here at the Katie Halper Show. We are so excited that you have chosen to spend some of your holiday time with us. We have a fabulous show for you today. We're going to be talking about history. We're going to be talking about the present day. We're going to be talking about Jesus Christ. Who the heck was he? Hanukkah. What's it based on? What's the real story behind Hanukkah? We're going to be talking about the labor disputes. We're going to be talking about the Twitter controversy. So much stuff with our very excellent guest. We are so excited to be joined by. Before we bring him on to the show, though, of course, just some announcements, which is that you please, please should be supporting the show by easily just hitting a like. Just give the thumbs up. That's all you have to do. You just give the thumbs up to the stream. That's the way you help spread the holiday cheer and the news about this show. Hit the like button. Share it if you can. You know, Facebook it out, tweet it out, whatever. Tell your friends and loved ones subscribe, just hit the subscribe and the bell so that you don't miss any of these streams. Guys, we're only 15,000 away from 100,000 and that's a big deal. And you get some kind of trophy, I think. So we definitely want to get to that 15,000. So do your part, please, by subscribing. Also, if you want to comment, we've set it up so that to comment, you subscribe. That's a great way to cut down on spamming also. And um, of course, if you want to support the show financially, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. That's $12 a year. Do that. And you get to make the show happen. Literally, that's what helps this show exist. Also, if you want extra content, including the full interview that we'll be doing, make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show at the $5 a month level. And again, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, $5 a month, and you get all sorts of great extended interviews, bonus content. So I really encourage you all to do that. And now let me just tell you a little bit about our guest. And again, he's making his Katie Helper Show debut. So things are really, this is going to be a, it's just a big moment. Samuel Biagetti is a historian, podcaster, and antique dealer with a PhD in early American history. He has had work published in Early American Studies and Journal of Caribbean History and forthcoming in Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities. He produces the general history podcast, Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. And we're going to look back at the year and find out why everything we know is wrong. So, Sam, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me on. It's exciting for me. I love the Katie Halper show. Thank you. So, Sam, tell us. First of all, I'm curious, what is the Yale Law and Humanities article going to be about? Well, the topic of the symposium that I was asked to contribute to was how can the humanities inform tech policy and design to foster healthy democracy and discourse online? So you can imagine I got this and I thought I need to deconstruct all of this and say, what exactly do we mean by democracy? What do we mean by healthy democracy? And I basically, I did the same sort of thing that I was figuring I might do tonight, which is jump back to the 19th century and to the beginning of uh, electronic mass communication, which was the telegraph, and look at how people 
reacted to the telegraph and the the sort of fears and hopes and excitement that it aroused and how that sort of echo is echoed in the disputes now about the internet and democracy. Wow. Okay. So let's start there then. Let's start with the historical context of what we're seeing right now in terms of these kind of Twitter wars. Yeah. Well, the the Twitter wars are very interesting, maybe in small part because I use Twitter and I often enjoy it. But I've always sort of been cognizant that you have to be very careful about how you look at a platform like Twitter because it's privately owned, it's for profit. And there are people who are designing it and operating it who have certain interests and profit motives. And there's a conflict, I think, going on that maybe in a way is coming to a head, but people aren't really, still aren't really conscious of it, that there's this conflict between Twitter being some sort of a public service or part of the public forum, and at the same time being a private for-profit corporation. And what the, and you know, I'm sure most of us have heard about these Twitter files that are being dropped bit by bit and how some of the kind of inner backdoor workings of the relationship between Twitter and the state are being brought out into the open. And there's a long history behind this, which goes back most certainly to the telegraph, if not even earlier than that. And the thing is, the Constitution mandates that there should be a postal service and that it should be a public service that allows the conveyance of messages among the public at cost, right? So it's inexpensive. And when electronic communication started to come along, beginning with the telegraph, a lot of people just assumed that those media too would also be public services, that they would be democratically, you know, state-owned, and that hence the basic rights that are associated with the post office would also apply, like the right to your messages being private and the right to freedom of speech, because it, it would be a public service. But that didn't happen. And I looked back and I researched, because of that paper I was doing for Yale, I researched about Samuel F. B. Morse, who invented the telegraph. And he was one of those people. He assumed it would just be taken up by the Postal Service, and it would just be an update to the Postal Service, and that it would be a public service. But Congress didn't want to do that. And he had to really campaign hard just to get Congress to allocate some money to build an initial experimental line between Washington and Baltimore to sort of prove that this technology could work. But then once they'd done that, they basically just left it to the private market and allowed private corporations to build the whole system and operate it and charge whatever rates they wanted. And the the advantage to the state was that then that meant that those constitutional protections didn't necessarily apply. So Western Union became the big monopoly corporation that controlled that system. And Western Union just read people's telegrams, didn't tell them, didn't respect their privacy, banned people, shut people out from using it. They created a monopoly in AP where they said only reporters and newspapers that are part of AP are allowed to use the telegraph. And they basically controlled information, didn't have to obey these uh First Amendment or Fourth Amendment. And there was even a Supreme Court case saying, yeah, Western Union can read your telegrams. You have no right to privacy. You have no right to freedom of speech. It's a private company. And that really set the precedent, right? And the advantage to the state was that then when Western Union wanted to, they could take political actors' telegrams, read them, and hand them over to to their opponents, their rivals, 
And this happened, for instance, in the disputed election of 1876. They just took Democratic politicians' telegrams and showed them to Republican congressmen in Congress as basically a way of bribing them. So you see how there's like a bargain that formed, right, where the state said private companies can run these systems, can control them as monopolies, if in return they spy on people, uh, censor people, that the state wants them to, right? It gives this sort of backdoor channel, right? And I think you can see that precedent now being repeated with the internet. And the internet is the most similar to the telegraph because it's a multinodal open network, right? There's no single point of broadcasting like you have with radio or television. It's this open network with, where messages can go back and forth among multiple parties. And when the state looks at this situation, it scares them, right? They say, well, how are we going to monitor or control or censor what's going on on this open network? And so they followed basically, whether consciously or not, they followed basically the same precedent that happened with the telegraph. They said, we'll create it, right? DARPA created the internet or, you know, Al Gore, <laughs> if you want to listen to Al Gore, right? The, the, the government put in the initial funding and research to start this technology. But then they said, all right, private companies, you take it over. You do what you want. We'll let you have monopolies, which is, you know, Facebook, Google, these are Amazon. These are monopolistic companies. You can have that power. We won't break you up. We won't take you into public ownership. We'll let you make profit. So long as you give us this backdoor and tell us this information about who's saying what to whom, and as long as you suppress right information or ideas that we don't like, that some, that we see as threatening. So it's a similar sort of bargain that I think you can see has developed now and kind of echoing, echoing the Gilded Age, right? And that's what I see a lot of this coming down to is that we are in this sort of new Gilded Age. Yeah. Can you expand on that, that idea of the new Gilded Age? Because people are, are bringing this up a lot. Yeah, there has been scholarship now that sort of disputes the received wisdom about the Gilded Age and have shown how there was a lot of contestation, there were movements for reform. But basically, it was an era where people had to reckon with conflicting ideas that, you know, there was this Victorian wisdom that the market will solve things, right? This was the original Victorian liberalism, right? We talk about neoliberalism today because in a way it's sort of a revival of Victorian liberalism. But, you know, the market, just let the market work. Uh, it'll respond to incentives. But then what ended up happening is a few huge monopolistic companies under, often under the control of a few families, right? And like I was talking about Western Union, they were initially controlled by the Vanderbilt family and then were taken over by Jay Gould, who, you know, was no better. <laughs> but people looked around and said, well, this isn't really turning out the way we thought. We're actually seeing this sort of draconian, sometimes authoritarian control of the economy by small, a small number of consolidated companies who, when push comes to shove, usually also have the backing of the state who will, you know, use force of arms to control workers, to suppress competitors, etc. And for a long time, there was just a lot of uh, confusion and struggle. And some of that, you know, a sort of new philosophy had to develop then later in the progressive era, which, you know, also is open to criticism in its way as well. But I think we're seeing the same sort of crises repeating now, where people, as the New Deal era, 
slowly is, you know, dismantled. Uh, and there's this return to sort of faith in the market. People are saying, you know, this, this isn't looking like what we thought it would be. You know, things, things in the 21st century are not looking the way we were led to expect, like in the 1990s at this moment of optimism after the end of the Cold War. So I think it's really that kind of inner conflict that really echoes the Gilded Age. And I think you can see that in this anxiety about the internet, disinformation, conspiracy theories, you know, sort of the monster is coming to life. What are we going to do? Uh, and kind of the confusion about, well, what, what, do, what do you want Twitter to be? Or what do you want Facebook to be? Are these public, part of the public sphere? Or are they just private companies that can do whatever they want? It's very confused. And also when it comes to labor issues. So that was that was another big thing. I don't know if you want to talk more about. I do, but I have a question before that. Sure. What do you think should be done with Twitter? Well, I mean, if it's up to me, I would say it should be a public service. I mean, clearly it's useful in all kinds of ways. But what you have is an unaccountable, secretive corporation. And I understand a lot of people are upset about Elon Musk. I mean, there are plenty of reasons to distrust Elon Musk. But the thing is, if you ask those folks, well, who owned it before Elon Musk? They don't even know. Like, and what were they doing? And who were, what were their interests? And who were they working with? Whose interests were they protecting? We don't even know. It was all opaque. Uh, and I mean, I don't, I, I don't trust Elon Musk, but say he, you know, he drops dead. I'm not calling for anyone to hurt anybody. But, you know, he maybe he has a heart attack tomorrow. Who owns it then? You know, where does it go then? Is it going to be someone just as bad, someone worse? And what's their agenda going to be? So as long as these companies are traded on the private market, we're all at the mercy of whoever can plunk down whatever amount of money it is, a few billion dollars, and do what they want with it, or, or just shut it down. Maybe it just fails, right? So I would say the, these should be publicly owned services, accountable to the demands of the public through the democratic process, and they should be operated at cost, right? Just like the postal service. Plenty of people are trying to ruin the postal service today, right? It's got a big target on its back. But I live in a rural town, and a town like this couldn't exist without the post office. I mean, the amount of, of goods, information that you can get to almost to your door, you know, for me, it's down the street, at incredibly low cost at an actually affordable rate. It's, it's amazing. And a lot of America just couldn't function without a nonprofit publicly owned post office. And I think that the same standards should be applied to these crucial services dealing with, with commerce and the exchange of information online. What do you think the most significant findings of the Twitter files have been? Well, I have to say, I haven't looked and combed through them closely. But I mean, I can say there are certain things that are undeniably significant, like the fact that there were a number, several dozen FBI employees who basically their main job was combing through Twitter and looking for things that they found suspicious or, or dangerous and basically telling Twitter. And to be fully fair, it does seem sometimes Twitter said no, but basically telling Twitter through secret back channels. We want you to suppress this. We want you to censor this. And this is not a partisan thing. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about right-wing people, you know, being suppressed in different ways, but it is not just right-wing people. It's people with all kinds of unconventional views, left-wing people, 
you know, World Socialist website has been mentioned. And, um, and I would say the, the biggest single issue, the biggest single issue that gets people silenced or censored or fired or canceled in America is speaking up for Palestinians. And I know you can speak to that, of course. <laughs> right. True, true story. Yeah, that's very important. And that's an issue that I think leftists need to remember when kind of not all left, hashtag not all leftists, but sometimes I think leftists, because they rightfully oppose certain forms of hate speech, I think sometimes they can be less critical of censorship than we should be. And in large part, because it's not just an issue of principle, but in terms of the effects, it does often bite the left in the ass more than it does anyone else, and especially critics of Israel or people from Palestine or people who are defending Palestinians. And this is a totally random potential detour. Maybe it won't be a detour at all, but I'm reading the book Unfamiliar Fishes, which is by Sarah Vowell. It's about Hawaii. It's really interesting. And she, just today I read a passage where she mentions that Morse, Samuel Morse, he invented the Morse code because his wife was dying and it took him a long time to get back to her. And by the time he got there, she had died. Have you heard about this? I did not see that specific story. I'm just curious if that's an urban legend or if it's true. Yeah, I guess I should believe her. The exact moment of the invention of Morse code is a bit of a mystery. He was really, he was working, he was like ensconced in his garret in the NYU edifice and tinkering with his sort of mad scientist invention, this telegraph transmitter. And somewhere along the way, he developed this code and it it took a while. And I think it's really not known exactly when and how he did it. But he did have, he had several wives and one of his wives was deaf. And it does seem that that uh, had an influence on how he went about developing uh, telegraph communication that he was thinking about putting things in visual terms. So I think that might have been an influence. That's interesting. Behind every great man is uh, a wife or two, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so before I asked you about the Twitter files, you were about to, I believe, talk about the labor disputes. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, this also kind of connects to what we were saying about censorship, because kind of the story that I was looking into culminates with a massive gag order where no one is allowed to speak in favor of a strike. But this dispute over the railway workers and the terms of their labor, I think, is so significant. And it's it's a convergence of several really long-standing processes that also go back to the 19th century. And on one of them is simply the, the struggle to control labor on the railways, which is still, even today, even the 21st century, is the backbone of the material economy. You know, it's how raw materials and finished goods, consumer goods, are moved to markets. And it's still critical and it's still profitable. You know, the rail companies are making plenty of profit. And then also, on the other hand, the, the sort of cycle that you can see in struggles between labor employers and the state in times of crisis. So we're still really coming out of the crisis of of the the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns. And in a lot of ways, this this averted strike, right? This This strike that wasn't allowed to happen this year, it is an echo of the strike in 1922, exactly 100 years ago, which 
was over a lot of similar issues. It was over pay and also safety conditions on the rails. And the echoes are amazing. So for one thing, it was coming out of the crisis of the First World War and the Spanish flu. So you had this situation where the labor force had been reduced and those who were still working had gone through terrible conditions. They had uh, more and more burden of work being placed on them as so many of their colleagues either died or were incapacitated by the war or the flu or simply retired, couldn't keep working. And so the workload was getting greater, the risk, the harm was tremendous, and the pay was being cut effectively because there was inflation. And so all of these things are really similar. And that strike did happen, but it ended up failing partly because uh, the media and the, the rail companies basically they accused the strikers of being communists and radicals of various kinds. And also they accused them of being the cause of inflation, right? They blamed inflation on the unions. It's because these workers want to be paid too much that prices are going up. And these were pretty effective PR lines for the employers and the government and the big newspapers. And so that strike didn't last. But it's remarkable. I think you can see a sort of progression here where with COVID-19, there's sort of been a similar crisis, right? Where workers are under strain, they're having to do extra work, they're having to take on new duties at the same time that a lot of them are ill and can't go to work. And the basically, the uh, this time they couldn't strike because there was a legal precedent in place from a Supreme Court ruling from World War I saying that if Congress wants to, they can just step in and force rail workers to keep working because the rails are critical to the whole economy. That means that it falls under the, the interstate commerce clause that the federal government can just say, well, because a rail strike would be bad for interstate commerce, we can just force you to keep working under whatever contract we decree, right? So in this way, you could say the situation has gone a step further. It's like now they're not even allowing it to get to the point of a strike. And they're basically saying, no, you're not going to get what you want. We're just going to force you to accept this contract. So so the, that was the first thing I looked into was just this incredible echo of 2022 and 1922, right? Both of them sort of crises of labor after the, basically after a pandemic, right? In, in the recovery coming from a pandemic. But even further than that, I mean, if you, if, if you want to go back even further, <laughs> the, uh, the rails have always been this kind of critical crucible of of work and the and the control of workers right and this is why i think there's so much precedent that's built up where basically more or less the state says we're just going to make you work don't try to walk off uh and it's not just because the rails are critical economically it's also because if the rails stop functioning that can lead to a spiraling crisis right where now you're at warehouses or factories where the goods aren't coming in. What are those workers going to do? They're probably going to strike too. They're going to walk out. If they don't get paid, they're going to walk out. And it can become a, a rolling, a general strike, right? That's more or less what can result because the rails are in this crucial 
sort of central role. And that's why I think the state and elites have always been hyper-conscious that we can't let a rail strike happen. This is like the big threat. This could mushroom out of control. And they've always known that, at least, you'd have to say, at least since 1877, which was when the first national strike happened. And it was totally spontaneous and unplanned. And it started because the B&O Railroad, you know, in a time of relative depression, there was a bit of a depression in the mid-1870s, the B&O Railroad cut their workers' wages by 10%. And so the rail workers in West Virginia on the B&O Railroad walked out and started marching. And it just spread along the rails. So then suddenly the roundhouse and station workers in Baltimore were walking out and picketing. And then Philadelphia, New York, Pittsburgh, and it went west, Chicago, St. Louis, within a week, within a matter of just a few days. And this is the thing, with the rails, the workers are moving and they're communicating with each other. And one action, it's like dominoes. And within about two weeks, it was in San Francisco, all the way on the West Coast. And the, you know, the state governors were panicked. The governor of Maryland called in the National Guard from different parts of the state to go into Baltimore and basically force the workers at gunpoint back into the roundhouse to get the trains running again. And uh, the the president Hayes called in. Uh, he actually when when it really mushroomed in Chicago, that's probably where it was biggest, right at that hub in the middle of the country. The president called in four military units out of the Indian wars that were going on in the Dakota Territory into Chicago to force to break up the crowds and force the workers back to work in Chicago. So this and this was seen and newspapers said it, it, it all happened so quickly and so cataclysmically with no forewarning, you know, as maybe if you were a worker, you could sense that something like this was going to happen. But to the elite, it all just exploded out of nowhere. And they said, this isn't just a strike. This is a labor revolution. They, in their perception, this was a revolutionary situation. Society was about to be overturned. And it, it really, and it took, it took guns basically to get the workers to, to stop rioting, to clear the streets. 45 people in total were killed in the violence, most of them workers. And it only lasted a few weeks. It basically was just in July, 1877. And, you know, it was not very organized. It just happened spontaneously. But it was like a huge warning shot, right? Everyone in the country could now see what had happened, which is that the whole national economy had been woven together by the rails. And the rail workers kind of held that choke point in their hands. If they decided to shut everything down, they could. And it's that's, I think, the main reason why from then on, the, the state and business have always agreed in saying, we have to keep the rails running. We can't let unrest or resistance break out on the railways. That could be a disaster that will explode out of control. And that was the mindset they had then going into the First World War. And when they briefly nationalized the rails, just sort of seized them as, as government operations for several years in World War I, and then gave them back to business afterwards. And that then led to the 1922 strike. 
So some comments I want to just highlight. One is uh, it's the only way to move, referring to the railways, it's the only way to move large military gear around. Two, Brad points out they literally preferred murdering people instead of providing reasonable worker requests. And Brad also said he wishes they would have done a wildcat strike. And then the government could have instead stepped in to demand the workers' very reasonable requests were met, but instead they sided with the CEOs. Yeah. Yeah. And on that last one, it it points to part of what I was trying to sort of puzzle out, which is that when there's a big crisis, like, for example, the First World War, right? When the U.S. gets involved in this war, it's a total war. They have to throw all their resources, all their industrial capacity into it. They basically say, all right, we have a situation on our hands where if the workers resist or walk out or refuse to support the war effort, we're screwed. Right, everything we, we we can't get our men and our arms and our ships onto the Atlantic, so we have to make sure that they keep working and keep the gears turning. Right, and so they make a bargain. They basically go to the rail unions, and by this time, you do have pretty extensive unions. There are craft unions that are affiliated with the AFL, and then more radical unions connected to the IWW, and they basically go to these unions and shop stewards and say, "Look, we'll make a deal." We'll guarantee you a certain level of pay, and they use the phrase living wage, right? We'll guarantee you get a living wage. You'll get an eight-hour workday, right? Reasonable time for rest and time off, and you'll get safety standards. You'll get big enough staff so that it's safe. And, you know, working on the rails has always been extremely dangerous, you know, and there's terrible history of uh, rail brakemen who just routinely fell off of trains or run over. And so it took decades of struggle just to get certain basic safety mechanisms like air brakes so that you didn't have to have brakemen jumping from rail car to rail car, turning manual brakes to stop the train. And they say, all right, we'll give you certain safety standards, living wage, reasonable hours, if in return you promise not to strike, if in return you guarantee that you will go out there and keep the trains running and keep the material moving. And that that bargain holds for a while, right? But then after the crisis is more or less over, right? So in so that might be after the war is over in the case of World War 1 and then also to some degree too in World War 2. Then the state wants to revise the bargain. And they basically say, "Okay, well, now we're handing control back to the private companies." And we're rescinding all those promises. We're no longer guaranteeing you a wage or 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 out working hours. Uh, we're reneging on all of that. But we're going to keep our power to force you to keep working and not strike, right? So they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to be able to say you're still obligated to work no matter what, and we can break your strike, but we're not giving you anything more in return. You're sort of back at the mercy of the market. And that's more or less what led to that strike in 1922. People said, well, look, we, you're, you're taking away everything you promised us. Why can't we just, uh, you know, if you're throwing us back to the mercy of the market, then we're going to strike or walk out to demand what we want. And they went on strike. The government then went to court, got an injunction. And the injunction said, you're not allowed to spend any strike funds. You're not allowed to hold any strike meetings. You're not allowed to make any public statements to the workers or to the public. It was a massive broad gag order, complete violation of the First Amendment, basically you know, taking away freedom of speech or assembly in order to shut down this strike. And 
Then, you know, fast forward to 100 years later to the current crisis, right, the, the recent crisis with coronavirus, it's more or less, I think you can say, well, this time the state just decided they could skip that first step. And they labeled a bunch of workers essential workers. And this is a thing, I'll brag a little bit, that I said this early on in 2020. I did a little urine review at the end of 2020 because people wanted to talk about what was happening in context. And I said, look, the states label all these various people essential workers. What does that mean? Essential in what sense? They're not guaranteeing them better treatment. They're not guaranteeing them safety. They're not guaranteeing them better wages or compensation. They're not essential in the sense that they should expect any better treatment or conditions than they've had before. They're only essential in the sense that we can force them to keep working, (laughs) right? So in that sense, they sort of skipped ahead right to the post-crisis situation of, well, you know, if you're really crucial and we need you to keep working, we'll just make you. And whatever your bosses want to give you, they give you. And it's, you know, too bad for you. And that's part of why I think you saw a bit of a strike wave last year, a lot like in 1919 at the end of World War I, where basically people said, look, I've been forced to work. I've been run ragged through this terrible crisis. Now that it's over, you're not giving me anything better than what I had before. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk out and I'm going to demand better, right? And that's still playing out in different ways in, in a very haphazard way today, right? But we're not as unionized as we were in the mid-20th century. Pretty unfortunate reality. Yeah. I mean, lever- it's good to have leverage. And historically, crises give workers leverage. I mean, for all the suffering, at least that's one silver lining you get, is that the workers get leverage to demand something better. And I really think a lot of the policies and a lot of the you know media talk about inflation, I mean, inflation is bad. It hurts people. But trying to connect inflation to the workers and say it's their fault, right. these are the sort of strategies that people have used to, to try to neutralize that leverage and say, no, just you just have to accept the status quo, but keep working. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Brad also says, but the only way any of this will happen is if we do away with the legalized bribery of our government representatives and or a literal physical revolution, which will include massive loss suffering. Yeah. Pretty depressing. Yeah, there's, there's no easy path. There's yeah. no easy path. <laughs> You brought up World War One, and you're someone who has compared the events in the outbreak of the war in Ukraine to the beginning of World War One. Richard Wolf and I discussed this too and drew some parallels. But what are the parallels that you see between those two events? Well, there, there are certain broad resonances in, in several ways. But the firstly, the main one is you know, scholars have debated for decades, why did World War I happen? And it's a very, it's a difficult thing to pin down. I mean, there were so many factors, you know, there were so many uh, dominoes that just all happened to fall in the wrong direction, and you ended up with this massive conflagration. But part of it certainly is that there was this situation where a lot of Eastern Europe, you know, Eastern Europe is a significant part of the world where I'm always grateful I don't live. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a very important region and it's overwhelmingly flat and there aren't a lot of natural barriers. So whenever a new a powerful state arises, they're likely to try to make a bid to control a lot of them. 
Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.